As an introduction, let me just say that the history of David as the second king of Israel, relative to his birth, his ancestry, his selection for office, his character, and his achievement shows him to be a very distinguished type of Jesus Christ as king. This fact is strengthened in three ways. Number one, it is strengthened by covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verses 11 and 12, the Bible says, And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom." Not only that, though, but it was also strengthened by prophecy, as found in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, where the scripture says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And as we noticed just a moment ago in your hearing, as I read the text as found in Hosea chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, I'll read that again. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without a teraphim, afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Not only is it strengthened by covenant and prophecy, but also by fulfillment. I wasn't here to hear all the sermons that Shai preached on, on the kingdom, but when the kingdom was established, when the church was established, in Jerusalem, when the very first gospel sermon was being preached, he may have even dealt with these very verses, I don't know. But in Acts chapter 2, this shows its fulfillment, and beginning in verse 29, the scripture says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, for he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to this flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses." Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the, that he hath shed uh, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. And finally, in one more verse, in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. I want to just share with you the idea that when I wrote the question concerning David and Jesus being with similarities or points of contact or Jesus being a king like David, I enjoyed the study so much I decided to write this sermon and hopefully it is helpful to you in some way. But the first thing I want to notice is, is that Jesus Christ was a king like David because David was from Bethlehem. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1, and we're going to get to the narrative that comes after this verse in just a minute on another point. I want to notice just verse 1 now, though, as we notice the fact that David was from Bethlehem. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. The ancient name for Bethlehem was Ephrath, or Ephratha, which is later called Bethlehem, meaning house of bread. And because it was David's patrimony, the New Testament speaks of it as the city of David in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 11. Now Jesus Christ, our Lord, being born in Bethlehem, was not accidental. That is not just some coincidence. In fact, God sees the end with the beginning. You know, when we look at prophecy, we see progressive revelation. We see things or God's will imparted to man over time in bits and pieces. And the prophets didn't have a full understanding of what God was instructing them or what God was telling them to predict or to prophesy about. We know what all of that means now. What a blessing that is that we can open the scriptures and we can look to shadow and substance and type and any type and understand God's entire plan. But remember this, this is not accidental. God sees the end with the beginning. Let me illustrate it like this. If you were here last Lord's Day, Terry did an excellent job in teaching about the cup and teaching about one cup. But you know, that was nothing new of the symbols that would represent the communion service back under the law of Moses. We can go back and find that every single house would have a Passover. The house is symbolic of or representative of the church today. What did they have? Every single house had a Passover. And when that would happen, they would have one lamb for one house. If the house, and by the way, the house does not mean the building. The house means the household or the occupants in that house, the family, if you will. The Bible would say that if the house was small, then a visitor could come into the midst of them, but none of the lamb could ever depart or go outside for anyone else, and it was one lamb for one house. Today we have one loaf of unleavened bread on this table. We have one cup contained therein as the fruit of the vine on this table. We have the same thing that symbolized a lamb for a house. The Apostle Paul in writing to those at Corinth, what did he say? He said, Jesus Christ is our Passover. And so today we will commemorate his death, his burial, and his resurrection in the communion. Another thing too, God sees the end with the beginning. I believe this with all my heart. When they took the blood of the lamb, it was placed in one basin. Accidental? No, I think God always knew there'd be one cup on the Lord's table. The birth of our Lord in the city of David was not accidental. In fact, as I just mentioned, God sees the end with the beginning. Going back 700 years before Jesus ever graced this world with His presence, ever came into this world, 700 years before that, one of the minor prophets of God, one of the 12 minor prophets by the name of Micah, he foretold in Micah chapter 5, I believe in verse 2, that Jesus Christ would be from Bethlehem. 
not accidental. God sees the end with the beginning. A point of contact is they were both from Bethlehem. But secondly, David was of the royal tribe of Judah. According to the story in the book of Ruth, Boaz of Bethlehem, Judah, begat Obed, who begat Jesse, the father of David. Ruth chapter 4 and verses 21 and 22. So in other words, of the chosen people, Judah was the divinely selected tribe among the twelve from which the kings would come. Now going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, the scripture says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. You know, this is one of the most outstanding passages of Scripture in the Bible. It pertains really to Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of Judah. But notice with me some terms now. The word scepter. The word scepter is defined as a stick. It is defined as a rod. It is also defined as a gavel. It is a description of somebody who would literally or figuratively hold the position of absolute authority and hold the position of final authority and final judgment. For example, if you stand before a judge in the court of law and the judge says you are guilty and then he takes his gavel and he strikes it with a downward swing down on that table there and he makes that noise that gives the final authority or final judgment. No one is able to hold the gavel or execute that downward swing of it other than the judge. Also, the word Shiloh. The word Shiloh is a very interesting word because literally it means rest. Literally it means tranquil. It means peaceful. Notice, Shiloh is also an epithet for Messiah. So what is he saying? He's talking about the Messiah having the scepter or the gavel. The Messiah at some point in time is going to have the absolute authority and final judgment. Well, the story of a, of a whole is this, really. The thought of this verse is that the son of Jacob, called Judah, will produce a tribe. But that tribe will not produce the law of government for God's people for a while. That's going to be done through the tribe of Levi, and those laws would be administered through the law of Moses. That will not be changed until somebody comes that is described as Shiloh or the Messiah, and then everything is going to change. And when that does, this is the beauty of it all then God's not going to deal with the nation of Israel only as His people. It is the world arrangement. It is for everyone. And the Bible says that all will be gathered unto Him and not Moses. You know what also is an amazing thought here? If the word Shiloh means rest. Now we know that Jesus Christ is the King. We know that Jesus Christ is reigning now, and He is reigning over His kingdom. The church is the earthly institution of the heavenly kingdom. We are part of the kingdom of heaven, right here on earth. 
And when Jesus comes back, he that has final authority and final judgment will take those that are his, those members of his church, and hand it over to his Father, and then Jesus Christ will step down his reign, and God will be all in all for all eternity. But Jesus Christ is reigning now over the kingdom. I said all that, I want to add one more point. If the word Shiloh means tranquil, peaceful, and so forth, and we know that he's the one that's the Messiah, that goes hand in hand with a passage that Jesus said when Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not only is the same person, Shiloh, that's going to hold the gavel, is going to execute final judgment, he's also the one that gives rest. He's the one that gives peace. You know, when you see a, a child of God that has lived their life, all their life, faithful unto death, there's a peace that comes over that person at the end of their life because they know that they have rest in Jesus. They know that they have rest in Christ. Having those wonderful characteristics and qualities that the Lord has and we submit ourselves to Him. We have those things in this life regardless of whatever the circumstances may be that come our way. What a blessing that is. One more point about these two dispensations of time. A person was governed by the laws, in other words, whatever dispensation that a person lived under, they were governed by the laws of that dispensation. For example, if somebody lived under the law of Moses, then they would be under the, the laws of that dispensation. They would be following the law of Moses. If they died before Jesus Christ died on the cross and before Jesus Christ established his church, then the blood of Jesus would go backwards and cover the sins of those that were faithful under the law of Moses. But if a person lived under the law of Moses all of their life and all of those Jews, and we can look to the 3,000 that were saved on the day of Pentecost, when they were baptized into Christ, they were Jewish by blood. So they lived their whole life under the law of Moses, under that dispensation of time. But the blood of Jesus Christ from the cross also ran forwards, and we contact that blood at baptism. What I'm getting at is this. Whatever dispensation of time that a man lives under, he is to be subject to the laws that govern that dispensation. And this tribe of Levi, administered through the law of Moses, would be until Christ came, the Messiah, Shiloh, bringing rest, and now Jesus Christ has final authority, and Jesus Christ will be the righteous judge. He will be the judge sitting on the throne. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ at sentencing day. You know, I don't believe there's going to be a whole lot said on the day of judgment. I may be wrong. We'll get there, and maybe we'll talk about it later then if I am. But I'll tell you something, I think that it's, it's a day of sentencing. I think it's a day of separation. When the judge is going to pass down judgment. But the trial is not on the day of judgment, the trial is now in this life. I'm on trial right now. 
At the end of my life, I'm either convicted or acquitted because I've either followed him or I have not. And then on the day of the resurrection, that's the sentencing day, either acquitted or guilty as charged and sentenced to a condemnation in hell. Well, the beauty of it is also is that when Jesus comes, when he came, all people will gather unto him and not Moses. David, though, was the first king of that tribe. Our Lord was also from the tribe of Judah. It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Now, the fact that Jesus Christ was from Judah, and by the way, God could have done anything that he wanted to do. God could have had none of these types and shadows which were figures of things to come. He could have not done any of that if he didn't want to. God could have not prophetically spoke of Jesus in the word of God if that's what he chose to do. We just know that he did. But the fact that he did, let's look at some of the rights that Jesus Christ has to the throne. First of all, because he was from the tribe of Judah, he had the tribal right to the throne. But what about Matthew chapter 1 and verses 1 through 16? Time will not permit us to go and read those names there. But here we find that Jesus has the legal right to the throne too. Not only the tribal right, but the legal right. Now Mary was the mother of Jesus. She was a virgin. And the Bible says that that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Ghost. That signified or made the fact that God is the Father of Jesus Christ. Mary is His earthly mother. Jesus did not have an earthly father in the flesh. So we said all of that, but now we'll say this. He had the legal right to the throne too, though, because Joseph, who was the foster father of Jesus... He was also a descendant of David, and therefore, he could therefore, by law, give Jesus the right to the throne. But not only the tribal right and the legal right, but also the rights by blood. In Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 31, it shows his connection, his blood connection with David by giving the ancestors of Mary. Jesus had the tribal right to the throne. Jesus had the legal right to the throne, and Jesus had the rights by blood to be king on the throne. Thirdly, though, Jesus Christ was a king like David because David was divinely chosen and anointed. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, I know I, know I mentioned to you just verse 1 a minute ago. But first of all, let me just say this. I put Saul here to show the difference between Saul and David. Saul was the people's choice. David was God's choice. And the Bible would say in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, now this is after Samuel had said to Saul that God had rejected him because it's better to obey than it is to sacrifice. And so God says, Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, my people? He said, what I want you to do is, I want you to get up, and I want you to fill your horn with oil, and I want you to go to the Bethlehemite, Jesse by name, for I have chosen one of his sons. One of his sons is going to reign on the throne. 
Samuel basically says this. He said, if I do that and Saul finds out, he's going to kill me. And God says, what you do is you take a heifer and you say you're going for the sacrifice and you invite Jesse and his sons and I will tell you which one of the sons that I have chosen. And the Bible says when they got there, they asked Samuel, are you coming in peace? He says, yes, I have come in peace. We have come to sacrifice. And like God said, the sons of Jesse began to pass by or in front of Samuel. You know, they begin with the eldest son. The first son that passes by is Eliab. And the Bible says that Samuel looks on Eliab and he says, Surely I am looking at the anointed of God. But God said, No, I have not chosen him. And he said, Samuel, don't look to the countenance of a man and don't look to the stature of a man because God does not look at those things in the outward, in the outward way. God looks on the heart. So then Abinadab walks by and God says, I have not chosen him. And then Shammah walks by, and God did not choose him. And seven sons of Jesse passed be before Samuel, only to find that every single one of them was rejected in the eyes of God. So Samuel, knowing that God spoke those words that one of his sons would be king, so he asks, who else do you have any other sons? I think this is beautiful. Jesse says, well, just the shepherd boy. Just the shepherd just the young one, the keeper of the sheep. That's a picture of what Jesus is to us. He is the great shepherd too. He's the good shepherd. We are his sheep. The Bible says that Samuel says we will stay right here and we will not even sit down until you get him and fetch him and bring him before me. The Bible says that when he comes before him, God said, that's who I have chosen. And from that horn, he took the oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brethren, that he was to be the one. I want to make one point. Remember when I just said when Eliab passed by and God told Samuel, don't look at the outward sign. Don't look at the countenance. Don't look at the stature of the man. God looks at the heart. Was he saying that you got to find an ugly one to be the king? Was he saying that you can't be good looking and serve God? Was he saying that? Absolutely not. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are four men. You've heard me preach on this. There are four men that are considered handsome and built well. Who are they? They were King Saul. That's number one. Number two, there was Joseph. Number three, a son of David, Absalom, whose hair was as black as the raven's wing. And the fourth one was David. David wasn't an ugly man. David was a handsome man. The point is this. When the people looked to Saul and saw that his shoulders stood and towered above everybody else, they said, that's our king because he looks like the kings in the world. He's a big, mighty man. That's all God was saying. I look at the heart. He was anointed with oil before his brethren. This should cause us to expect David to be a great king and also to see him as a proper type of Jesus Christ. Like David, Jesus was divinely chosen. Jesus was anointed. Through the prophet Isaiah, God spake of him as, in Isaiah 42 and verse 1, he spake of him as my chosen 
in whom my soul delighteth. You remember at the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan, the Bible says that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. He also is king after God's heart, expressed in the words, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was God's choice too. But number four, Jesus is a king like David because David was manifested or made known to Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, you remember when the Philistines were in battle or the battle was set in array against Israel. And the time will not permit us to go into all the details of that story. I'll just point out a couple of things. You remember that the people's choice Saul fled in terror. Not only that, but every single one of those in Israel, all of those in the army and so forth, they all fled in terror. And the Bible says that on one mountain was Israel, on the other mountain were the Philistines, and the battlefield was down between them in the valley. What happened? Goliath, the Philistine giant, the champion of the Philistines, who some scholars say was 9 feet 9 inches tall. Other scholars said he was 10 feet tall. It really doesn't make any difference. This is one great big man. And for 40 days, twice a day, he passed by the battleground and he said, Choose you a man for you. Choose you a man for you that would come and fight against me. And if he kills me, we will be your servant and we will serve you. But if I prevail over him and I kill him, then you will serve us. You will be our servants. No one wanted any part of this great Philistine giant. On the scene, though comes a young boy by the name of David, a shepherd boy. He comes on the scene and he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He tells King Saul. King Saul says, You can't go against him. King Saul says, You're just a youth. You are but a youth. And he a man of war from his youth. But David says, Let thine heart not fail because of him thy servant will fight. And the same God in heaven, that's the whole point. The same God in heaven that delivered me from the lion and the bear, that's the same one that's going to deliver me now for the battle is the Lord's. And the Bible says when the Philistine looked to David, he disdained him. Can you imagine? The giant was wondering of all the people you could have chosen, is he the one? You know, I don't know if this is true. But I heard a scholar one time, I heard somebody quote a scholar one time. So this is just free. But I heard that when it says that he was ruddy and of fair countenance, it means that he probably didn't even shave yet. Now, I don't know if that's totally true, but I do know this. He was young in his face. And the Philistine looked to whom Israel had chosen, and he disdained him. And he says, I'm going to feed your carcass to the dogs, or however he said it. And when he said that, and when Goliath started to proceed against him, David runs on him. From the pouch, he took one of those five smooth stones. He took that sling and he slung it, and it struck the Philistine in the forehead so great, it embedded itself in the forehead of that Philistine, and down he goes. And David goes over to the Philistine, and he grabs his sword. I've tried to picture this. Maybe he just rips it out of its sheath. I don't know. And he takes it maybe over his head like this. And with a downward blow, he cuts the head off of the Philistine giant. When that happened, David was announced 
as the champion among God's people and the champion among God's cause. He was announced as the champion. In fact, when they came back from the battle, Saul loved him. Everything was great. This young man really stepped up. And he was fine until they came back from a battle against the Philistines. They were victorious over. And the women came out and the women played. And the women sang and the women danced. And they said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He was revealed to Israel truly in a remarkable way. Jesus, in like manner, was also made known in a remarkable way. It took place at his baptism in the Jordan River. John the Baptist said of him, I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. For this cause came I, baptizing in water. On that occasion, Jesus was pointed out as the Messiah by the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him in the form of a dove and the voice of God who said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's go full forward a number of chapters, though, to Matthew chapter 17. This is after Peter had said, and Jesus had said, I'm going to build my church on the statement of fact that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. By the 17th chapter, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are there. And you remember also that Moses and Elijah appear. And the only reason I believe that they were there is to show that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. He fulfilled it all. As Jesus says, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, Matthew 5 and 17. Well, Peter's overcome by this emotional experience, and he says, i got a great idea. We need to build three tabernacles. Naturally, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What did God do? God made known once again. He made known to those that were there present who their focus needs to be on. As he said when he came from the waters of the Jordan, he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When the descent of the Holy Spirit and a dove came down upon him, he received the Holy Spirit without measure. Well, in Matthew chapter 17, he reiterates that fact, and he says, No, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. From his baptism, though, from that point forward, he was known as the anointed of God, whose will he came to do. Number five, Jesus was a king like David because David was tested and David was approved. Because of Saul's insane and murderous jealousy, David was forced to flee for his life. You remember those period of years in exile. In for, and that's found in 1 Samuel, the 18th through the 30th chapters. He's in exile. He is running for his life. But you know, during that period of time, he was tried, he was tested, and he was prepared to sit on the throne. You know, you never know what circumstances in this life. I don't know how God works in all the ways that he works. His thoughts are so much higher than ours. I don't know about that. But I do know that sometimes things that we go through in life that we have to endure... Many times, those are the things that prepare us for something in the future. I'm not saying that this was divinely appointed, but I'll just use this as an example. I do believe that all the years of going to Ventura, over 12 years of driving to Ventura, I think that had a little bit to do with helping me in my life, with people, as a preacher. 
I think that sometimes circumstances in life and sacrifices that we make, those things, I'm not saying they're divinely appointed, I'm just saying that sometimes those are things that prepare us for things down the road. Now, who would have thought this was going to be the king, and yet he's in exile from 1 Samuel, the 18th through the 30th chapter. He's running for his life. Saul is out to kill him daily. He was being prepared for the throne. During this time, he puts his trust totally in God. He developed a character of patient waiting for God's own time and suffering every insult and indignity, and he did so without retaliation. You remember one time, now this was his enemy. He had an opportunity to kill Saul. You know what he said? He says, who am I to take the life or to slay or to kill the anointed of God? He had an opportunity to remove his enemy, yet... No retaliation. The relentless armies of King Saul were out to get him daily. No retaliation. What a hard road to travel to the throne. Jesus, our King, was in like manner tested and approved. For over three years in a personal ministry, he lived a life of hardship and a life of humiliating experiences. Yet the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. I'm going to tell you something. Have you ever thought about that? In all points? Like as we are? That means that temptations that I've had in my life, and by the way, temptation doesn't mean sin. Giving in to the temptation is the sin. The temptation is going to be there. And James 4 and 7 says what we do when the temptation comes. We submit ourselves therefore unto God. We resist the devil and he will flee from us. But Satan is doing the tempting, not God. But when we look at that phrase that Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are, that means that whatever temptation that man has even today, he was tempted in like manner. The difference was he was yet without sin. And he did that for 33 years or so. But for three years, he was persecuted. For three years, he had nowhere to lay his head. For three years, he was rejected. For three years, he was criticized and threatened, yet with no retaliation. He did not retaliate at all. He was hounded by rulers of the Jews who sought his life. John 7 and verse 1. Yet he did not retaliate. He walked away from them. Luke 4, 29 and 30. And during this time, he, like David, put his complete trust in God so that he could say, I am not alone because the Father is in me. Jesus was a wanderer on the face of the earth. Nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8 and verse 20. Patiently he endured all sort of indignity. And finally, he laid down his life. And you know, the crown that he got was not the crown of a king. It was the crown of thorns. He was not given the position of honor in this life as a king. No, they put a scarlet robe on him with the crown of thorns pressed down on his head. And they mocked him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. But Jesus is on his throne now. Jesus is on his throne over the heavenly kingdom. And you and I are part of that if you're a member of the church. What a blessing indeed that is. When we look at Jesus' life, we find that it was also a weary road of suffering 
as he came to the throne. The Bible says he learned obedience by the things in which he suffered. See, sometimes suffering is good for us. We always pray, remove the suffering, remove the suffering, remove the suffering. Maybe we ought to ask for strength in the testing. Maybe we ought to act, ask for strength to get through this. That if it's not God's will to remove this from my life and I have to go through it, then so be it. I look forward to the person that I'm going to be on the other side of this temptation, this trial, this occurrence, whatever. He learned obedience by what? By the things that he suffered. But number six, Jesus was also a king like David because he had a, David had a reign of righteousness and a reign of mercy. David executed justice and righteousness unto all his people, 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 15. The quality of mercy is well illustrated in the mourning for Saul and Jonathan. Now I said that he already rejected the idea or the notion that he should kill King Saul. He says, no, who am I to do that to the anointed of God? But you know, when he finds out that Saul and Jonathan and Jonathan's brothers are all killed in battle, you remember what happens? What's amazing to me, I can see why David would mourn for Jonathan, and I can see why David would write those words, oh, Jonathan, Jonathan, you have been there for me, as I paraphrase, your love is greater than the love of women, of woman. That's the bond that they had. I can see him mourning for him. The Bible says he mourns for Saul. And not only that, not only that, he instructs the daughters of Israel to mourn for Saul too. How easy would it have been? Let's throw a party. He's finally out of the way. Not the anointed of God though. And they mourned for him. He showed mercy in that. He extended mercy and kindness to Mephibosheth. Again, we won't go into that whole story. But when Mephibosheth was brought before David and he's falling down at his face right there before King David, he thinks David's going to take his life because he knew that the custom was if there was any remaining from the household of the previous king that the new king would step in and the new king would kill every one of them so any one of these other family members couldn't rise up later and say, that's our kingdom, we're the king. That's what Mephibosheth thinks is going to happen. By the way, that's why he's crippled. When King Saul died and Jonathan died, a nurse picked him up and tried to carry Mephibosheth off. I don't know how old he was. However it was, she drops him. He was lame in his feet for the rest of his life. He's in exile. He's terrified. He's now before David. And David says, get up. Not only am I not going to kill you, I am going to grant unto you all the lands of thy father Saul. You know, thy father Saul, that's a, also sometimes used for grandfather, and that's what he's talking about. I'm going to give you the lands of your grandfather, King Saul. I'm going to restore it all back to you. And incidentally, do you remember when David finds out about Mephibosheth? He found out from Mephibosheth by a man named Ziba. And Ziba was a servant of King Saul. You know what David does? You want to talk about extending mercy? Not only does he give Mephibosheth the lands, but he makes Ziba, a former servant of King Saul, and all of Ziba's sons to be those that keep the land for Mephibosheth. But the greatest act of mercy and kindness is when he said to Mephibosheth, and you're going to eat at my table for the rest of your life. A reign of righteousness and mercy. David extended Righteousness or extended mercy to his rebellious son, Absalom. That's hard to do. 
but he did. He continued on with his religious zeal as well. He kept two prophets. He kept Nathan and Gad. He kept two high priests, Zadok and Abiathar, heads of two rival houses of Aaron, 1 Chronicles 24, verses 1 through 6. Yet his constant delight was, as he said in the 122nd Psalm, that I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. He was glad to go to the house of the Lord, a reign of righteousness. In all these matters, he was a fine model for his people. Like David's reign, our Lord is characterized by righteousness and mercy also, only more so. God said of him, a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, Hebrews 1 and verses 8 and 9. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, it says, When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. When the woman in adultery was brought before him, you know what Jesus does? He extends mercy. Oh, he didn't say, leave her alone, let her stay in her sin. He extended mercy. He said, he who's without sin, throw the first stone. And when they couldn't and they all left, he said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You can't be saved if you stay in sin. Jesus said, go and sin no more. But I'm going to tell you something, the greatest act of mercy. Can you imagine? The Lamb of God is now on the cross. And for six hours or so, he's hanging on the cross. And yet all he can think of, those enemies that nailed him there, that spit in his face, that put the crown of thorns down on his head, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A reign of righteousness and mercy. His religious zeal was manifested in his continual teaching and preaching. His presence in the synagogue on the Sabbath and his cleansing the temple and so forth. You know, that, I want to make one point about that. Sometimes people think that Christians can't get angry. That Christians, I'm talking about like maybe a world perception of what a Christian professing person ought to be. That if a person ever gets mad, that that's wrong in itself. That a person can never be strong-willed or has to be timid and so forth and so on. Jesus was angry. Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and Jesus said, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. He was mad. The Bible doesn't say don't get mad. It says be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither giving place to the devil. Now that's what happens. If you have anger and malice in your heart, you are giving place to the devil if you don't get rid of it. But the Bible never says don't ever get mad. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus' reign was one of mercy, compassion, love, but religious zeal too. And that tells me that I can stand and earnestly contend for the faith with all the, every fiber of my being. I can even get stern about that and still be merciful and have compassion and still be a Christian. The Bible says be angry, but sin not. Finally, though, Jesus was a king like David because David was an invincible warrior. God said unto David, I will make thee... A Thee a great name, like unto the name of the great ones on the earth. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 9. As a conqueror, his name has been divinely inscribed on the roster of the kings of Egypt, Assyria, Greece, and Rome. 
When he became king over all Israel, the first place that he conquered was Jerusalem. Now, he comes to the throne and he is reigning over Judah for seven years. Remember that when we studied about David? For seven years. But he was reigning over all Israel for 33 more years or a reign of a total of 40 years. He lived to, to be about the age of 60. First thing he does, though, when he's reigning over all Israel is goes to the place, the battleground, and conquers that part of Jerusalem that became also known as the city of David. As David's war began in Jerusalem, so did Jesus' too. Christ commissioned his disciples to preach repentance and remission of sins among his name, among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, Luke 24 and 47. This remarkable story of the spiritual conquest of the city of the great king is recorded in the book of Acts. And listen, you know what's amazing? You know, we've been studying on Wednesday how many people were obeying the gospel. I'm going to go to the Philippines, Lord willing, on the 1st of January. And the congregation here has been behind that work. And that's been wonderful for us all. How many people obey the gospel when we're gone in the Philippines spreading the word of God? And sometimes we look at those great numbers and we think that there's no hope. What about us? What about us? In A.D. 63... 30 years after Jesus died on the cross, thereabouts, Paul said this about the gospel. Paul said that the gospel was preached under all creation under heaven. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. You know why? Because they followed the Great Commission. They went therefore and taught or made disciples of all nations. They baptized them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Then they taught them to observe all things whatsoever Jesus had commanded them. That's what they did. They followed the pattern. Shai told me that he, was, he mentioned uh, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus on the morning of the, on the day of the resurrection of Christ. One of them was Cleopas. The other, we don't know his name, but they're walking along. They're talking to Jesus. After Jesus opens up the scriptures to them with Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. They learned about the resurrection of Christ through the word of God before Jesus ever revealed himself to them. When they got to Emmaus, he reveals himself to him and Jesus was gone. You know what the first thing they said? Didn't our hearts burn within us when he showed us, opened unto us the scriptures along the way? What'd they do? They immediately got up. They traveled seven and three quarters of a mile back to Jerusalem to tell, the, tell those other disciples. What did they do? They heard the word of God. It was like Jeremiah. It burned in their heart. They couldn't be still. They got up immediately and they shared it with those other disciples. That's the pattern. Have it burn in your heart and go tell others too. Well, Jesus Christ will press the battle. Until all kings shall fall down before him and all nations shall serve him. And like the type, God will make his son's name great. His name will endure forever. His name shall be continual as the sun. Psalm 72 and 17. In conclusion, I'm finished. With the facts that we noticed before us today, we can see the typical significance of David. Among all the Old Testament heroes, there is no person at all that's comparable to him in character or achievement. 
It is only in the New Testament that we find his counterpart in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is now seated upon David's throne according to promise. He's in heaven now. He's reigning now. Jesus, a king like David. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.